I think it's worth mentioning um, how we first got the idea for this podcast because I texted you one morning. It all started with a dream that you had about us doing, you know, just sitting down and just getting our thoughts out and sharing them with the world. No, wait a second. We could we could literally do that, you know, even with our time differences and things like that. So uh, I think we have the wonders of uh, your subconscious and our um, slight obsession with Snapchat for this. <laughs> I, I, ju- I just think it's probably one of the most lovely things. And I think Shakespeare would be envious of getting the idea come to him in a dream, which is <laughs> like waking up like, yes, I've got it. <laughs> I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Now we're starting a podcast about the six Tudor queens. Welcome to our first episode. Where queenship reigns supreme. Um, So I think given that we're doing a podcast hopefully series on the um, Henry VIII's wives or the six wives um this the first sort of question would be when did you first become aware of them uh for me it's a bit of an unconventional story just because um you know in the in the U.S. where I grew up they're not really part of the curriculum I think we talked about the English Reformation maybe for like 10 seconds in European history class but other than that Um, they're really not part of the curriculum. So actually, I first encountered one of them at the local Renaissance Fair, um, which is actually really cool. Like, I'm not going to knock Renaissance Fairs. This one's really cool. And uh, one of the um, interpreters was dressed up as Catherine of Aragon. And me being Disney princess obsessed, and um, also with the name Catherine, um I freaked out because you know here's this really cool queen who has the same name as me so um I was I was smitten right away and I actually have a picture of me posing next to her like she's Mickey Mouse um and so that was really my my first encounter with any of them but I don't really ever I don't think that was like the beginning of when I would study them because at that time I was maybe five or six so it's not like I went home and you know started reading a biography or whatever but I think her name was kind of like saved in my head so that later on when I did encounter them somehow probably through the internet um I was like oh yeah that was that lady that I met at the renaissance fair um and that kind of started everything right I think especially like as kids so you kind of like you what you said about that whole disney princess type aspect of the whole thing you kind of latch onto that little bit and you kind of get that idea of oh yay crowns tiaras oh there's one with my name and you, it just it makes you happy and it feels good like for that point and then I think that there's a bit of a spark and somehow they then just end up in these sort of major parts of your lives and you just like when you think about not knowing about them it feels strange for them to have never been there really and I think that's for me where we we differ because I think growing up here um, in in the UK they they've somehow always sort of been there um, even if they've just kind of been bubbling away in the background and I just I I don't remember a point of ever really not knowing them but kind of not being aware of them but I think the first sort of time for me they really came alive in a in a in a, in a real way I think 
was on a class field trip and we went to um, Anne of Cleves house <laughs> and we got to go and then um, explore the house and there's there's um, within that house you know you can go up into her bedroom and things like that and there's a chest at the end of her bed and I think at the time you know not being that old you know you need a bit similar to you you get to play dress up um, and just think oh okay you know a princess or a queen lived here at some point and that's really really cool and then just even if you're not aware of it that's spark- of curiosity or that seed of curiosity has just been sown and came a little bit of a lifelong love in a strange sort of way. So then were you able to make the connection like in school like did you study them in within your curriculum and think oh yeah that was the lady whose bedroom I was in on that field trip? Yeah so I think the part of that field trip that we then got to go on was actually part of our Tudor module at school um and I remember like within that class we'd kind of been doing lots of different things and thinking about the life of a queen um sort of now I can think about it in a more sort of structured way but at the time we were making um I think we were making cushions or something mine mine didn't turn out very well you would never been that sort of <laughs> would have been a terrible sort of 16th century woman my embroidery is terrible oh, yeah. but um <laughs> and then when we went to the, then go and see them uh, see the house and stuff we were able to start kind of connecting it all and bringing it all together and I was always quite a keen reader about them or quite curious anyway um I remember like being quite young and just looking at them uh, as kind of princesses or queens in pictures of books thinking okay that's cool and then you can then sort of make that association of I recognize that lady we've been making yeah. cushions we've been playing in her bedroom and things like that and it just sort of built from there but did you have a sort of similar thing at any point where you know through through school or you know your own just curiosity where you were able to then sort of build on your love of them well I mean I think again just because um I didn't they're not our national story so I didn't study them in school and when we did do European history it was like a thousand years of European history condensed into one academic year. So it was not something that, you know, teachers felt the need to include. It's like, you know, are we going to talk about, you know, Anne Boleyn or the French Revolution? Like, what's more important? (laughs) It was uh, strictly a hobby for me, and it was purely my own curiosity. And even then, thinking back, it was in my formative years when I was first starting to read about history, and I was maybe like 9, 10, 11, 12, you know, that was before even the tutors the show came out so it wasn't really like as big of a thing here as i'm sure it was there you know like i didn't go into the chain bookstores and see books about the six wives sitting on the table so that's where i'm probably very grateful for the internet because i can remember like you know reading these wikipedia pages obsessively and um wanting to talk about them but not really having an outlet to until I started getting a little bit more active on the internet especially like you know I was part of like the first tumblr generation so there were a whole like tumblr blogs dedicated to the six wives of Henry VIII and Tudor history so I was like oh yes good there are my people but it was strictly a hobby and like even in college um, I never encountered any professor who was specifically interested in even wider Tudor history, like even the 16th century as a whole. Um, So I had to kind of cobble together sort of a specialty in my undergrad. So I didn't really have any formal academic exposure to the Tudors until we met in our MA program. 
that was really the first time that I was like, wow, I can like write real essays about these people that I've been interested in for years. I mean, any any history nerd will agree with me. It's such a rush to be able to do something that you're actually interested in for credit. There's something so satisfying about being created to read on this. Okay, tell me more. <laughs> Let me put these words on the page. Let me tell you exactly what I think. Right. So, I mean, every, every essay prompt that we had in our MA program, it would be like, write about a ritual experience. I'd be like, okay, cool. Andalyn's coronation. I was getting it all out of my system. This like pent up, you know, I need to write about them, but no one will let me. And then finally it was sort of let loose. So until then I hadn't really had any real chance to talk about them in any academic or professional sense. There's nothing quite the same as when you finally, like you said, you're, you're getting you're getting graded on your kind of lifelong what you've been wanting to work on or something like that, and then you find other like-minded people. It's like you 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 want to come and talk about the complexities of you know being a woman. Uh, cool, okay, fun. Let's go and do that. Right, and I mean when I'm ever meeting you know you and all the other people are in our MA for the first time, it was so nice to be able to talk about these people without having the like explainer like you know you don't have to say oh Jane Seymour oh no not the actress the third wife of Henry VIII like I could just tell you about Jane Seymour and you'd be like yeah 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 and I wouldn't have to explain it <laughs> I remember that especially for you um, when we were talking about you know um, doing essays or when we went on that walking tour and things like that you just kind of like light up about you know being surrounded by these people and just kind of being back with them it was so nice that you know just just either just someone else's intellectual curiosity. I always think it's something to gush over when when you see someone being intellectually fulfilled and just you know like I found my place, I found my people. Yes, <laughs> which is why I think it's so awesome that we're doing this because this is what we do anyway as we talk about this stuff. So it is feels only right that people should finally be listening to these intelligent conversations we have for fun. <laughs> yeah, now just the people who are sitting around with us at the pub and they're like, shut up. <laughs> um, no I think that is I think yeah it is nice and I think we work quite well together anyway and I think we bounce quite well off each other anyway and it's just like have you thought about, about this well yes I have let me tell you all about the thoughts I've had on this particular thing <laughs> no way me too or something like that and I think it's really nice because like you said like we are coming at this from very different viewpoints and it's just we may have taken different paths to kind of get here but somehow through the misgivings of the sort of universe have a, have ended up in the same place because like we were saying earlier like I was exposed to them in a much more I suppose sort of obvious much more sort of tangible sense that I was able to kind of touch them and go and visit these places and have my curiosity sparked in that 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 sort of way and have access to sort of books or horrible histories um and things like that so when I, I my kind of education point with them and my kind of uh, sort of oh my goodness I'm actually obsessed with these people in a very real way that I didn't even realize sort of came at college took an A level in in modern history to begin with um which was fine it was fun um but I just remember I feel like I'm going through the motions with this and while I'm am interested in you know sort of Mao's China and the changing role of women in in the UK in the early 20th century I, I didn't I didn't feel that same sort of spark that I feel with with early modern history and with that Tudors especially so I actually swapped over to 
um, the early modern course. And I I don't think I've looked back since then. I've literally just kind of gone full steam ahead. I remember talking about the Reformation in England and in Europe and just the 16th century more widely. And honestly, I've never felt more at home in my entire life. I just, I think it's a very kind of rare thing to find something that you're passionate about, but then actually just think, I'm, I'm never putting this down. I, I'm just, give me everything you can. <laughs> sort of the the introduction to these six women in the popular psyche my first thought even from across the pond is the rhyme the divorced beheaded died divorced beheaded survived is that like yeah. and to me that seems like something that you would have learned in school like almost like a nursery rhyme no we absolutely did learn that in school and it was a case of here's this man here, here is a king here's henry the eighth by the way he had six wives wasn't that extraordinary how do we remember all of these women because there's quite a few of them and it's the the force beheaded and died the force beheaded survived i'm not gonna sing you because i feel like that'd be kind of embarrassing um but no you you do start off with that and then you kind of i think you learn you learn about them within that very rigid confines of when they enter henry's life and once he's done with them either you know if they, they died he killed them or he he died you know that that's it once henry's story's over it more often than not their story tends to be over Um, and then to kind of find out more about them you have to go and do that groundwork and you go and do the jigging and kind of build on that research that other many many wonderful historians or history nerds have done before you and you get to kind of immerse yourself in their world a little bit longer what was your kind of first sort of perception of them I think for us, it's more of the um, the like historical fiction romance stuff, because um, like I never remember really being exposed to the divorced beheaded died rhyme until I started listening to like British educational programming, like you know, horrible histories, or like when I finally made it to the UK and went to the Tower for the first time, it was everywhere. So I think like my first pop culture perception of them was almost like the more grown-up version of the divorce that had died it was not necessarily the order it was then still in order but it was not necessarily the way in which they were disposed of it was the way in which we sort of carved out roles for them you know like Catherine of Aragon being like the strong slighted wife and Anne Boleyn being the other woman and Jane Seymour being like the you know quiet one and Anne of Cleves being the ugly one which is very much perpetuated all of these, you know, novels. And um, and then, of course, the Tudors came along, and that was a really big thing in the U.S. I suppose, in a sense, you kind of got exposed to, like, the more sort of, like, sexy, salacious version of it. like, And that was like, sort of, from what you just said, like, that, your first introduction. I remember watching yeah. the Tudors, and I think I still have my box set of it somewhere. Oh, no, oh. you had the box set. Oh, no, not, not past tense, present tense. Like, I still have it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, just I remember watching that and just being like, interesting. These are just more than that sort of like you know that divorce beheaded died narrative. You know the, these are kind of complex sort of people. Even then, though, the wives are still 
confined to this romantic world. They're there for the 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 romance and not much else, which is sort of the grown up version of the uh, divorce that had died. Like their their identity is solely as Henry's wives, rather than yeah. people who are political players themselves and get their political power from having married Henry. Um, with that sort of thing I think that idea of their political power and things like that is something that we it's not necessarily forgotten but you know sort of within the pop culture sort of arena and things like that it tends to fall by the wayside a little bit in favor of sort of the myths and the the legends and the scandalous and more fun um, for want of a better word, aspects about them. Stepping back and allowing the, the things that pop culture has influenced for you personally as a historian, let that kind of guide you, you know, let that pique your curiosity, but then have the ability to kind of step beyond it as well. I think everybody needs a hook, don't, don't they, right, into something. And I think a lot of the time um, it does tend to be the, what, what do you mean, you know, that she, she looked like a horse, um, but, you know, in Anne of Cleves' case. But I definitely think there needs to be a sort of an understanding about, you know, that kind of propaganda wheel and how, for me, the thing I find quite interesting is how those ideas from the 16th century have kind of been sustained and that we've ended up with them now. But then I think, you know, as you said, it's about digging underneath those a little bit more and finding a ways to engage with the people and the women especially underneath them although for all of that i'll admit freely that there are still some sort of stereotypes that we face where i tend to still kind of let it rule i think we agree on this that for some reason we both are just kind of not interested in katherine howard like however interested we are in any of the other ones for some reason, when we think of them, we kind of always tend to neglect Catherine Howard. I think that's, a, you know, that's a personal sort of, you know, you're interested in what you're interested in. Everyone's interested in something different. But I also tend to think that it's because of these stereotypes. Like Catherine Howard has the unfortunate label of being like the young, stupid teenager. So when you're when you're researching all these women, you tend to kind of gravitate towards the more built up ones, you know, like obviously Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn because they have more screen time. Catherine Howard's myth is that she's young and stupid, which is sad because in the last few years, especially, there's been so much really interesting work done that sheds light into her life. Like we don't know a ton about it, but um, it, it fleshes her out a lot more, which is so interesting. And it's just a shame that, like, for so many years, I neglected that side of her. No, sometimes you'll just kind of catch yourself or just being like, oh, God, not her again. And it is, I have to say, for me, like, you know, like you said, for both of us, it is always her. And I don't know about you, too, but, like, sometimes when I look at media that has to do with them, I tend to be much more interested in the first three because they relate to each other so well. And even when you're studying history, it's like that, but even more so when you're adapting their stories for dramatic purposes, it tends to be like this very like neat story. Um, And then when Jane dies, you sort of 
the relationships of these three women together kind of ends. So I feel like the last three, Anne of Cleves and Catherine Howard and Catherine Parr, I feel like they tend to be overlooked just because they are at the end of the list. And it's a relatively short period of Henry's life when he's married to these three compared to the first three. I don't want to say it's not as exciting, but in terms of like monumental historical events, it, it is pretty, pretty boring. Catherine Howard for me kind of gets lost in that. It's like I look at Anne of Cleves very briefly and then I kind of skip over Catherine Howard because it's like, OK, and then, and then that happened. Um, and then I go right to Catherine Parr because a lot of interesting stuff happened while Henry was married to Catherine Parr. But it's kind of interesting, I think, especially the sort of like the language that we use about them, um, like what you just said about Catherine Parr. OK, there was stuff, there was interesting stuff going on with Henry while he was married to her. Okay, let's go and gravitate and let's go and look at her because of what was going on with Henry. And I think kind of one of the really exciting things that we want to do with this and the conversations that we want to have is sort of lift them out of that order and just sort of see them for who they are rather than Henry's wife. Which, yes, that is part of their story. And I don't think we can ever absolutely get away from that. But I just think there's so much more to them. Um, and I definitely think that you're, you know, you're right in the sense that those first three, they're so, they're so linked. And sort of, they're linked in the turmoil that Henry created because of them. And then I think, you know, there is that tendency then to just brush over to kind of Catherine Parr. Because you can just kind of see Henry as an individual, you know, kind of going downhill he's marrying the 17 year old girl in, in the form of Catherine Howe and you're like oh, oh I don't oh, no 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 let's what are the adults doing and then even Catherine Parr getting all this attention as the one who quote survived when Anne of Cleves was technically the one who survived them all but you forget that because it's that's not the order that's not the, how we remember them she she was divorced, so apparently that just means that she disappeared and uh, Catherine Howard was the replacement. So take your exit stage left. Thank you very much. You were done. Thank you for playing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she, she's gone, never to be heard from again. Who's next? <laughs> A lot of people are really surprised when I tell them that actually Catherine only lived for a couple of years after she, Henry died so she didn't survive for that long because when she finally got to marry the love of her life she there was a lot of drama first of all but then she died in childbirth that tends to escape because that doesn't fit into the story the story always revolves around Henry as their husband and their relationships to Henry and their relationships with each other as relates to Henry once we take them out of that rigid structure and all those sort of look at them as women as opposed to queens with limited lifespans almost like mayflies there's a i think we can see a lot more that kind of binds these women together um than sort of okay i'm in you're out off you go and i think even with Anne Boleyn and um Catherine of Aragon you know sort of when we look at them strictly within that very rigid divorced beheaded and died i think you know while they were never going to sit down and be friends had they both had that opportunity i think we can see things that join them together. And I think that's quite interesting. That's why, you know, we want to sort of look at them as not, well, especially not in order. Like, I think it's really important that if we're doing this, we take them out of their order because in, in a lot of cases, they 
were interacting with each other outside of you know their their strict marital order but um because like you said they're all women who are dealing with sort of the same things so we can appreciate them all as 16th century women who have things in common and um who experience the same kind of life and the same um sort of prerequisites for queenship um so that's something that we really want to do is to talk about these women within more thematic episodes and talk about this their similarities but also how they interacted with their worlds yeah and i think sometimes that's something that we miss the social aspect to the 16th century you know in, in sort of more general and you know as you were saying they, they shaped the world that they lived in um through their marriage and things like that so i think by us just you know understanding them as sort of the elite women but then we can then also broaden out our conversation to kind of include other women who weren't who were just you know as formidable and doing their own thing but didn't have that sort of both privilege and burden of wearing a crown as henry's queen so i can imagine that sometimes it felt quite heavy <laughs> i think it'll be really good for us to not really talk about them in biographical terms like you know starting with Catherine of Aragon and like you know oh she was born in Spain and raised in Spain but talking about what was her life like in Spain how was she raised uh, how was she influenced by her parents and talking about how that relates to her within the English court and as Henry's queen and talking about all of the wives experiences with childbirth and um, queenship in general, like what roles were they expected to fill? Um, for those who received a coronation, how are they different? How are they the same? Because I think we'll find that when we step back from all of them, they have much more in common and they have much more power than we really give them credit for. We didn't necessarily learn about them in this way, but we can certainly talk about them in this way. And I think it's really important that, you know, when we kind of looking at history and just sort of historiography and the way it's sort of delivered more broadly, that it's okay to step out of that structure. And I know, especially with when we're talking about sort of Henry VIII's wives or, you know, the six wives, that's very much ingrained into us, to, the way that, you know, we sort of look at them and talk about them. But I just, there's something to be said, I think, for challenging that and trying to move the conversation on but in a slightly different way i mean i'll fully acknowledge it is just bizarre that this really egotistical man married six times like even at the time people thought that was really strange so we can all fully admit that we were drawn in by that you know we don't have to not admit that to ourselves Henry is a really interesting figure and his persona is really interesting to study and the sheer luck of the Tudor dynasty and the self-awareness of the Tudor dynasty and the insecurity of the Tudor dynasty is just fascinating. It's just that when now we need to add in all of this other stuff, especially where the women are concerned. Honestly, I, I genuinely think if, if he had been normal and stayed married to Catherine and you know that 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 was that you know no Wolsey no Cromwell it would probably be you know sitting here talking about maybe the English Civil War or something and just how bizarre the Stuarts were 
So mm-hmm. the reason we want to do this is because we we have these conversations and we realize just how important it is to have them and to talk about these women not in terms of their relationship to a man, but they're in terms of their relationships to each other and their relationships to English politics and English culture, um, because we do that anyway, and it's fun, but it's also a really great opportunity for us to reconsider their lives and kind of rewrite the narratives. And I'm really excited to kind of just get going with this, really, and just sort of see where these conversations takes out takes us. I, I know we've kind of got some sort of ideas about where we want to go with that but I think by us sort of taking a thematic approach to these women and to their lives and their stories I think ultimately we can just let them tell their story through us I think they're gonna end up guiding the way that we go not in some sort of ghostly way but you know there's there kind of will be a sort of gentle guiding hand from them I think in how how we discuss them and when we discuss them looking ahead this is obviously our our first episode of this podcast and we wanted to just give you sort of an introduction into us as as your hosts and the people you're listening to having a chat but also what what our goals are and what we're kind of going into this wanting to achieve we want to look at these women in a thematic way so our episodes are i think going to reflect that we uh, brainstormed quite a few of them but um, in the coming weeks, we really just want to keep going with this sort of theme of introduction. Uh, we'll be looking at more broad concepts of um, queenship in general. What did it mean to be a queen in the 16th century? What were all these women getting themselves into when they married Henry? Um, but then also, as as Callie said, letting them introduce themselves and getting that sort of broader biographical sketch of them before we proceed and we start talking about broader concepts again so excited I'm honestly so excited I think this is going to be really fun even if it's just us two talking to ourselves on the internet I think I'm excited just to be able to kind of research them and um fall back in love with them and just tell a story I like stories Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of our new podcast. In our next episode, Callie and I will continue your introduction by introducing you to our six queens. In the meantime, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Twitter, and read more about the queens on our website. There you'll also find a full transcript of this episode, plus the resources we use to prepare for our conversation. Long live the queens!